Our passage today comes from um, the book of Romans. The book of Romans was written around 57 AD. Romans 1.1 identifies the author of the book of Romans as the Apostle Paul. Romans 16.22 indicates that Paul used a man named Tertius to transcribe his words for him. And Romans 16.1 tells us that Phoebe, that Phoebe, she most likely carried this letter to the church in Rome. The letter is written to the body of believers in Rome. It was written from Corinth, where Paul was ministering at the time, just prior to Paul's trip to Jerusalem. Paul was going to Jerusalem, as we know, to deliver alms or offerings to to the believers there, the poor there in Jerusalem. uh, Romans 15.24 tells us that Paul had intended to go to Rome, and then he was planning to go on to Spain to minister. But as we know, when Paul went to deliver the offerings for the poor in Jerusalem, his plans were interrupted because he was arrested. Paul would eventually go to Rome, but not as he had planned. He would go as a prisoner. With all of Paul's epistles to the church, his purpose for writing this letter was to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ by teaching doctrine and encouraging them in truth. Paul was himself a Roman citizen, and he had a unique passion uh, for those of the assembly of believers within the city of Rome. Since he had not gone to Rome personally at that point, this letter was also a bit of an introduction uh, to the church there, the body of believers, an introduction of himself. The book is primarily a piece of work of doctrine. It tells us about God, who he is, what he has done. It tells us about Christ, Jesus Christ, and what his death accomplished. And it also tells us about ourselves, what we are like without Christ and who we are after trusting in him. The theme of the book of Romans can be found in the first chapter, verse 16 and 17, where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, Second, to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous live by faith. The book is divided into several very important sections, major sections of doctrine. Sin is the first one that comes up. And sin, that is condemnation or man's need of God's righteousness, the need of salvation. Listen to Romans 1, 18 through 21. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without an excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. Identifying our true sin nature, even though it's been revealed the truth of God. Romans 3, 11 and 12 says, For as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks after God. All, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Romans 3.23, which many of us know, for all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, after covering sin and the need of a savior for for, for reconciliation with the Lord, he then goes into justification. And justification is God's provision of righteousness or salvation, as we call it. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us that while yet we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of eternal life is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then after talking about how one is justified, how one is, 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 is legally uh, made righteous, he then goes into sanctification. And that's the demonstration for the believer, the demonstration of God's righteousness in our life, or really what we call the life of salvation. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are controlled. This is the believer now. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. In Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work for the good of those who love him, who have been called, called according to his purpose. Another very huge piece of that that comes after the sanctifying thing, it starts in chapter nine. And I don't have this in my notes, but I met John Kyle as a, as a, as a young man preaching in a church here in town. And my wife and I had to move on from the church we were at and we showed up to the church that he was the preacher at and he was in the book of Romans chapter eight and he was preaching through it and we left that first service and my wife and I were both very pleased in the fact that he was doing expository preaching because at that point there at about the year 2000, it was a, it was a rare thing around here, a blessing. Well, then John came to Romans chapter nine and y'all Romans chapter nine has some real truth of the scope of salvation. The sovereignty of God in salvation. Salvation is all by God and his grace. It has nothing to do with man. God is the one that awakens, draws, and saves. And boy, I'll tell you what. When John started preaching, I think John, what is he now? Like, so that was probably like, he was probably like 30, 31 or so back then. I mean, he was a child. And when John started preaching that, I was like sitting there when he was going through it and John didn't do, well, it could mean and it could mean or it could mean and it could mean. John just went straight through it. And I looked at my wife and I was like, did he actually just do that? And it's true. Romans chapter nine lays out something that is so important. It is so crucially important to our understanding of salvation, but also our eternal security because salvation is all of God and not of man. The scope of salvation for the Jew the first and then the Gentile. Paul makes it clear how both are saved starting in chapter nine. Listen to Romans nine, 14 through 16. All that you just heard was just a little extra, okay? It's Paul said, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend upon human desire or effort but strictly upon God's mercy. Our effort did not save us. Salvation is completely based upon God's mercy. And finally, starting in chapter 12, Paul finishes up with a theme of doctrine and it's the service. The service or what we might call Christian works. The behavior of the righteous. Now remember, this isn't that we are righteous, it's the righteousness of Christ, the exchange that took happen that is explained in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The application of salvation here for the believer. Listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
Just perfect. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your lives as your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. That is directly at the believer. This is how to live the life that honors Christ. Present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to the world, but continually transform our mind. How do we daily transform our mind? Anybody? Be in the word. Thanks, Art, for being here today. Okay? Being in the word. I'm telling y'all, we can do a lot of great thoughts. We can read some extra books. We can listen to some worship music, and it can be very... Being in the word of God, the truth of the word of God is the transforming piece that we need each and every day so that we will be presenting ourselves the way the Lord desires and we will not be conformed to this world. I love what some of the, the wonderful believers in the past have to say about the book of Romans. Listen to what Martin Luther said about the book of Romans. He said, it is the chief part of the New Testament, and I would agree, and the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel. See, when we think of the gospel, it's the good news, the message of Christ, the entire message of sinner, (laughs) how one is saved, justification, the sanctification, the glory. It's all there. And Martin Luther says, man, the book of Romans, perfect, spells it out. Luther's right-hand man and who ended up uh, succeeding him was a man named Philip uh, Melanchthon. And Philip had this to say, the anthology of Christian doctrine is the book of Romans. John Calvin said this about the book of Romans. When anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to understand all of scripture. And G. Morgan Campbell said this of Romans, the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes ever rested is the book of Romans. But yet at the same time, it is the most optimistic poem to which your ears have ever listened. Man, when you hear the truth of sin, that is pessimistic. But as that thing finishes, the entirety after that of the book of Romans, as G. Morgan Campbell said, it is the most optimistic poem your ears have ever listened to. The book of Romans truly makes it clear that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves and that each person is dead or condemned because of their sin and that only the grace and mercy of God can save us. And we know how God expressed his grace and mercy. By sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for all who believe. So our passage today comes at the end of Paul's section about justification. Just prior to that thing in Romans 9 where he hits it home about how the sovereignty of God in salvation. And it is all God, the calling. Paul finishes up Romans chapter 8 dealing with a thing of the righteousness provided. And it's here at the end of 8 that Paul just literally, and I love this, he just busts out. He absolutely busts out an intense praise that is presented in seven different questions. See as we read this, see if, well, just look for the questions. Just look for the punctuation. I say, see if you can find the questions. Well, if you got your Bible or you're looking at the overhead, you'll see the questions. Here we go. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What shall we say then to, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for all of us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, while most of these questions are definitely rhetorical, they're no less real. And a rhetorical question here is a statement intended to give sort of an unforgettable answer but in the form of a question. Paul uses a very interesting probing Q&A format here as he wraps up chapter eight. Um, As as he wraps up chapter eight, he does this taking a, a personal pause to have the reader think, to have the reader think, to have the reader ponder everything that he has said from chapters one through here at the end of chapter eight. How many of you have heard of the, the gospel presentation um, said as the Romans road to salvation. Anybody heard that? It's chapters one through eight. Literally, every verse in all the doctrine are chapters one through eight. It is, it is all there. So Paul's technique here is to get the reader to truly ponder before he switches gears to get the reader to truly ponder everything that he just said. And instead of using connecting words, Paul literally uses that, that a rapid fire sort of disjointed approach moving quickly from one to the other to capture the attention and make the reader think things through. Jesus really did something similar as he utilized questions. Jesus used questions over 300 times in the gospel. Many times Jesus answered a question with a question. Okay. Paul the preacher gave a lot of information in the first eight chapters and he, he's referencing or he's referring here. When Paul starts off saying, what then shall we say of all these things? Paul's literally saying, what shall we say of verse chapter 1, 1 through chapter 8, 30? What shall we say about all this? Most of us would go, oh, it's a lot. It's a lot that he said. But here, Paul's going to spin it around to have us rethink things. He's trying to, to bring everything together. He's trying to bring together the, the truth. When the, the person understands that they are, are a sinner and, and separated from God without their sin, Paul brings home the truth of justification, which is so important. It's a, that declaration of God, the, the righteous judge, that the person who believes in Christ, sinful as they may be, is now viewed as righteous Because through Christ, they have come into a righteous relationship with God through Christ. Paul is reminding them, think about this, think about it, that if you have been justified, you have been saved, he is very much into making sure they understand their sanctification. And we're going to talk about there here today. Sanctification has a base word in it with the same meaning as the word saint. Both words deal with holiness. To sanctify means to set something apart for special use. To sanctify a person means to make them holy. So Paul's literally been dealing with, you are now not this, you are here, you are set apart, you are holy. That's why scripture says, we are holy because he, Christ, is holy. And Paul has just finished up 
the beautiful piece for understanding about glorification, which is God's final removal once and for all. And I was in the church office this morning chatting with Carrie French about um, uh, about what's going on with Kevin in Africa. Continue to pray for Kevin serving there. It's all good. And Carrie literally made a question of that. One day, one day when it's all removed, praise God. And Paul de- deals with that just prior to our, our verses today is glorification, God's final removal of sin from the life of the believer, the life of the saint. It is that eternal state that we will have with the Lord in heaven. So with this in mind, How does one answer Paul's question of what shall we say then? Well, really, if Paul's saying, what shall we say then, dealing with everything in the first eight chapters, there's really two things that you could could come to mind. First thing would be, I can't say anything. My mind's just like, poof, blown away by everything you've said. If you've received a totally undeserved gift, have you had a time where you couldn't even find the words to express the amazement of what's taken place? Okay. Paul was stunned, was absolutely stunned by the gift of salvation and the provision of sanctification and the eternal security that each person will have in Christ. Considering all that God has done, Paul's like, what can we even say? Job expressed this. Listen to Job 44, 44. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Before you, I literally can say nothing. Have you ever had that kind of thing? It's just better to say nothing. Just that's what Paul could be saying here. But on the other hand, Paul's question, what shall we say? Could also be, I better say plenty. If this is the truth, chapters one through eight, which it is, I've got tons to say. I mean, Shouldn't I explode with praise and never stop thanking God for all that he has done? Think about what Jesus said to the crowd who was shouting Hosanna in Luke 1940. He says, I tell you that if they kept quiet, even the stones would cry out praising him. The question Paul is asking serves to help us, help us not only to be stunned, but to truly give praise and rejoice in our security in Christ. So here... In what we just read, Paul gives seven reasons that the believer should explode. What shall we say then? We should explode explode in uh, praise and worship for the Lord. I like to think of it as sort of seven facts. I was trying to make it like the John Kyle type thing. Is it is it seven facts or seven truths? You know when Paul always, John always does three facts, five facts? Am I the only one that notices that? I mean, it's the easy go home thing. There's the main points, Okay. I've got this down to seven, seven reasons or seven facts or seven truths that believers should explode in worship, okay? Seven facts about the conquering, the conquering love of Christ. And I, that word conquering is like, you know, boom. <laughs> and it's not a bad conquer. It's an overcoming, all in, overcoming, all-encompassing, beautiful conquering. So here we go. First one. The love of Christ, the conquering love of Christ, the love of Christ guards us. Look at verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's important to understand this question correctly. If Paul had just simply said, who can be against us? I'd go, everything out there. Correct? But that's not what Paul did. See, Paul's question is connected to a statement of fact. 
He starts with a statement of fact to the believer. God is for us. God is for us. Who can be against us? It literally reads this. Because God for us, who against us? That's how it reads in the Greek. Because God for us, who against us? Okay. It's not really a question, but it's more of an exclamation. Okay. One commentator says it well. He says this. There is no truth more fundamental in all of God's word than this truth. God is for us. God is not against us. God is not neutral towards us. Because of Christ, once and for all, the question is settled. God is for us. The word for means above, over, on behalf of, while the word against means down upon. Sort of like God is up on you. Therefore, what does it matter who's down on you? If God's up on you, what does it matter who's down on you? Think of it like this. Since God is for us, what difference does it make who or what is against us? Uh, Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will fear not. What can man do to me? I just, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? Paul's not suggesting that we don't have opposition, that we don't have issues in life. We don't have adversaries. The point that God is making is that every opponent is insignificant to the almighty, all conquering creator and redeemer, our God. Um, when my kids were little, um, they used to watch a show called Veggie Tales. Anybody? Do kids watch that kind of stuff today anymore? I'm looking at parents. Yeah, it's like vegetables. Okay. But Veggie Tales. Okay. And I remember one of the episodes. And if you're sort of of my generation, you're in your early 40s like I am. And you've, you, you know, not hardly. Okay. Uh, here's the thing is that one of the Veggie Tales, it was really, it was really awesome. In one of the Veggie Tales, which there's always a, 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 a story of, a, from the Bible and meaning and songs and humor. One of them, a song was in it and it was, it's titled God is Bigger. It's titled God is Bigger. Bob the Tomato, Veggies. Larry the Cucumber are trying to console Junior Asparagus. This cute little guy with the ball cap on, you know. No arms. It's always interesting. They were carrying stuff with no arms. My kids sat there and said, that's impossible. Where's their... Vegetables don't have arms. Just go with the show, okay? My kids were that way, y'all. Okay? They were trying to console Junior Asparagus as he's going to bed and he's fearful of everything there. And the song said, in trying to have them understand him understand, song goes like this. Because God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's watching over you and me. And y'all, I almost sang it because I know the song from watching it 10,000 times. Well... Well, Junior Asparagus didn't quite understand what they were saying. So Bob, the tomato, and Larry, the cucumber, take them over to the bedroom window and have them look outside. The amazement of stars spread out in the, the galaxies. They take them over to look at the stars in the night sky. Then they broke out in praise of the God that created all that. The power and the majesty of who he is. And if that's who God is and you are his... Do you think you're in good hands? Do you think you're in good hands? Okay. And then they literally break out into praise of God and all of his creation. Then after naming all of his scary foes, Junior Asparagus comes to the conclusion. And he literally says this. God is the biggest. And I now know he's on my team. 
I now know he's on my team. And for the believer, this is 100% correct. For the believer, this is 100% correct. The sad thing is many judge whether God is for them by how events and circumstances are currently going on. If things are going well, if stuff is good, we think God's pleased with me. And if things aren't really going well, we think God must not be pleased with me or not for me. But that is not true. If you are a born again believer by grace through faith, Christ is your savior. God is always for you, no matter what is happening out there. The second thing we see about the love of Christ is that it provides for us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered up for us all. How shall we not with him also freely give? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? When Paul said, God gave up, gave up for us all. He means Christ died. Christ died on our benefit, our behalf, and as our substitute. And since God did not hesitate to give Christ as his gift to us, when Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, he was the gift that died for us. While we were still sinners, we didn't work our way towards him. God didn't say, work your way towards me and then. While we were still his enemies, while we were still sinners, he gave that miraculous gift of Christ to us. What Paul's saying here is that if he's willing to give this gift, this amazing gift, that while we were still sinners, why would he then hesitate to give us a lesser gift? If he gave us the one thing we truly need, Christ as our redeemer, why would he not give us the lessers? Does it make sense? Okay, that's literally what he's saying here. Okay, the phrase freely gives all things does not uh, uh, refer to health and wealth. We've all been there before, probably. Well, maybe not. (laughs) Maybe it's just my venture in churches where they could spin this around of giving us all things. It's health and wealth. It is not a health and wealth passage, but the gift of everything we need is given to us. The gift of everything we need to handle Our life and its troubles comes our way in Christ. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work uh, together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And that means he has promised to meet our needs in Christ, to meet our needs, not our greeds. Okay? Our needs, our needs for his purpose and his glory. Okay? You like that little swallow thing going on there? Okay. All right, a third one, the love of Christ cleanses us. The all-encompassing, the all-conquering love of Christ uh, cleanses us. I once heard the question, do you feel guilty? Do you feel guilty when when you sin, when you break rules, when you disobey? Then that person said, well, you are guilty. We're all guilty, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that is true. That's correct. That's correct. Why? Because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here is the good news. Here is the good news. When we cry out for mercy, repent and receive Christ, the Bible says that we are justified, declared righteous in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. And now no charge of guilt can ever be brought against us. Check out the question in verse 33. It says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? My guess is there are some here that even though you're saved many times, we still hear the accusation of guilt 
and shame and, and the playback in our mind. Think about it. According to uh, Revelation 21.10, Satan. Satan is given the name there that means adversary. Adversary. And Roman Revelation 21.10 says that Satan is the one that tries to accuse the believer before God. It says, accusing them day and night before God. But nothing that Satan can say before the Lord sticks because we have been cleansed positionally in Christ. We have been cleansed positionally because God has justified those that believe through Christ's sacrificial death. No charge can ever be brought against you. Nothing that you do today, tomorrow, or down the line can be brought against you. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that raises against you in judgment. Uh, J.I. Packer writes it this way. Nobody can produce new evidence. I love that. Nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change his mind. God justified you with his eyes wide open. No new evidence of your depravity can make God change his mind. God knew what he was doing when he called you and saved you. The fourth one, the love of Christ intercedes for us. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Because no charge can be brought against us, we will not be condemned. And think of it this way. Our sin deserves condemnation. But Christ doesn't condemn us. He actually commends us. Can you picture that? Our sin deserves condemnation, but Christ who intercedes on our behalf doesn't report condemnation. He reports, uh, 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 commends us before God himself. If Christ died for us, if Christ died for you, rose again, sits at the right hand of God and intercedes on your behalf, how could he possibly be there to condemn you? John 1 First uh, John, excuse me, 2 verse 1 says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And as Romans 8.26 says, it gives us even a greater confidence of, of the interceding that we have. And while Christ himself here intercedes for us in heaven, Romans 8.26 also tells us that the Holy Spirit is also interceding on our behalf within our hearts. Okay, Intercession is taking place for us. The fifth one, the love of Christ sustains us. The love of Christ sustains us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? See, Paul can barely contain himself here with excitement as he exalts in the security, the eternal security that we have in Christ. To separate means to cut off or to amputate. Okay. In Jeremiah uh, 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Everlasting means Everlasting, never stopping. Doesn't say I've loved you with a love until you did that again. It's an everlasting love. And Paul is just freaking out in excitement of this everlasting love for his children. Okay. We will never be cut off from Christ no matter what we go through. It's here that Paul lists seven troubles which have no power to separate us from the love of Christ. Paul lists these things, uh, these items uh, uh, to answer the question. Who shall separate us from Christ? Now, it's interesting here. He says, who shall separate us from Christ? When I hear who, I think of a person, don't you? But he doesn't name people. He names situations and circumstances. Normally, we think of, of intimate things as, as inanimate things, these things as a what, not a who, okay? 
It's like, why did he say who? One commentator points out the reason Paul might have done this for two reasons, using the word who here instead of what. First, these things come at us, and boy, when they come at us, it really feels like a who. Who done that, okay? Not a what, it's who, okay? And second, Paul wants to set up a contrast with this who and the greater who, okay? Meaning no matter who or what is against you, you have a who Christ on your side. Christ is the who that is greater than any who on the other side. Okay. Listen to Paul express these troubles and how they increase with intensity. First one he mentions is tribulation. Okay. It really means to, 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 to be squeezed because of pressures and circumstances. Then he talks about distress. It literally means that narrow place. It's what happens inwardly when we're ripping through the roller coaster of emotions. He then talks about persecution. And we know that this would deal with persecution, uh, would deal with suffering because of our faith. He then speaks of, of famine. Okay. And this is a severe want, a severe need. When we think of famine, we think of food, but it literally is dealing with the word that is in severe need. He talks about nakedness and we know nakedness would be without clothes, but the word that's really being used there is more about us being embarrassed because we've been exposed. We've been exposed for who we are and here comes trouble. Okay. Because they know we're in Christ. Then he talks about peril. It's the idea of living in an, in an imminent place of danger. And finally, the peak of all troubles is the sword. And this is literally referring to uh, the slaughter knife and represents death. And it's really interesting. When Paul wrote this, six, the first six situations of, of distress, Paul had already faced. There was only one he hadn't faced yet, and that was the sword. And guess what was coming? The sword. Okay. The sword, the martyrdom was coming. We all face trouble within and a hardship without, but no one can separate us from the love of the Savior. Nothing can break the bond between us and Christ. Many of the Romans who, who heard these words would see them all come true in their own lives as Emperor, Emperor Nero uh, threw Christians to the lions and burned believers at the stake. Think of it this way and listen closely when we're dealing with this. The only things that our earthly trouble can take away are ultimately things that don't matter. The only things that our earthly troubles can affect are ultimately things that don't matter, okay? The things that really matter, our troubles cannot affect. And what is it? What is the one thing that ultimately matters? Christ. Our earthly troubles are gonna affect some things, but they are things that don't matter. Our earthly troubles cannot affect the one thing that matters. And that's our bond to our Lord through Jesus Christ. Okay? Sixth, the love of Christ prepares us. Prepares us. According to verse 37, Jesus has prepared us. Not only to survive, but to thrive. Sounds like a um, billboard for Kaiser or something. I see Joe laughing. When I drive home, I, I live... I live in Dixon. Okay. And when I'm driving home to, to Dixon, they used to always have these billboards about something about thriving. And yeah, Paul wasn't talking about healthcare here. Paul is literally talking about the life of, of the believer. We're called not to just cope and to survive in life. We're called to be conquerors. He's calling us to be conquerors here. But see, that's interesting. In verse 30, in verse 36, he says, we're, we're, we're considered sheep to the slaughter. And that's 
the extreme difficulties that the believers will, will go through. But here in verse 37, he says that we're more than conquerors. See, that's a serious jump, sheep to slaughter, to, to a conqueror, okay? But in Christ, both are true. The word conqueror here means to overcome, to, to dominate, and to, to utterly defeat, okay? And, and Psalm 60, 12 says it very well. With God, we will do valiantly. I like that word, valiantly. With God, it's going to be tough, but we're going to rise above. We're going to rise above. We are going to be cleansed. We are going to be purified. We're going to be continued to be conformed into the image of Christ. And all that matters will stick. And all that matters is Christ. And one day that will be refined, purified, and perfect forever with him in heaven. We can be more than conquerors because Jesus himself is the conqueror. Jesus said this in John 16, 33, but take heart. I have conquered the world. We're called to be more than conquerors, even when we're dealing with health issues, relationship problems, financial problems, stress on the job, whatever persecution you may be facing with your faith. The key is, the key to being more than a conqueror is to think less about the power of things over you and more about the power of Christ within you. Think less about the power of things out there that are affecting you and think more about the power of Christ within you. Because you are a conqueror and you are an overcomer as we renew our minds and remind ourselves of that power and that promise that we have in Christ. The last one, the love of Christ assures us. When life feels unstable and we wonder what's going to happen next, meditate on the promises of verse 38 and 39. How comforting to know that there's nothing that can separate our relationship with Jesus Christ and separate us from his love. Paul is personally sure He is certain because he literally writes, I am persuaded. That means I am fully convinced. It's in the perfect tense, meaning I stand convinced and nothing in the future would possibly change my mind. Paul even gives a long list of extremes as proof that nothing could ever separate us from the love of God. When he's done listing those options, his conclusion is there's nothing that remains which could possibly separate us from the love of God. Of Christ. Look at the things Paul mentions. Paul mentions of things that will not separate us from the love of Christ. He says, neither death nor life. Well, this is the extremes. This is the extremes of existence. This covers the whole range of the human ex- uh, experience. Birth, death. Okay? But for the believer, the death truly is the doorway to the, to the excuse me, death really is the doorway to heaven, to being with our, our Savior. Death removes the sting of sin. And we are purified and glorified once and for all. He talks about nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. And this is really an extreme of forces. Principalities would refer to um, demonic activity. Powers would refer to earthly authorities antagonistic to Christ and the believer and angels. Well, uh, angels wouldn't undo our relationship with God anyways, but it shouldn't be our, our focus. Point is, every power that exists is created and is subservient to Almighty God. He then brings up, nor things present, nor things to come. Well, this is the extremes of time. There's nothing happening today which will change your position in Christ, and there's nothing that we'll face in the future which will break, alter, or affect that with Him. Nothing in time, nothing in eternity can separate you from the love of God found in Jesus Christ. He then says, nor heights, nor depths, and this is the extreme of space, okay? Nothing overhead, Nothing underneath can unsettle you because nothing will swoop down and snatch you and nothing will come up and capsize you, neither heights nor depths. And finally, he says, 
nor anything else in all of creation. And this is just sort of the extremes of creation. Paul adds this just to make sure that you didn't miss anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Paul adds this to make sure you didn't miss anything. This is sort of a catch-all phrase to let us know nothing in creation can sever us from the love of God found in Jesus Christ. The phrase be able is very interesting here because it really translates as like dynamite. So this is no matter how explosive things are, they can't separate you from the love of God found in Jesus Christ. Which, while it's hard to feel safe in our world today, if we know Christ through the new birth, our relationship with the Lord is completely assured and secure forever. Uh, John Bunyan, in, in his autobiography, Grace Abounding in the Chief of Sinners, he, he tells of how he went through several years of sort of wrestling, uh, wrestling uh, with his conscience. And he shares something here that gives some practical insight. Listen to what he said. But one day as I was passing in the field with some dashes in my conscience, thinking through the space of time and things within my conscience, fearing all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say, there is my righteousness. So wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. I also saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Christ Jesus himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now that's strong. Our righteousness, our good standing with the Lord for the believer is strictly in Christ Jesus. That's got to have us all go, okay, that's strong. God's love for his children is unconditional, sacrificial, and fully expressed in the death of his son on our behalf. Romans 8 begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. These promises will never be reversed revoked or changed for the believer. In Christ, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. If Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God and his love is upon you for eternity. But if you have not recognized, if you have not come to the recognition that you are a sinner, that you are in rebellion against a holy, righteous God, then I truly implore you, turn to the truth of the Bible. Turn to the truth of the Bible, the love of God, and seek the reconciliation that is needed and is only found through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, God in the flesh. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. Everyone here, someone's got to pay. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Christ. Why? Because God is righteous and just. Just for the wages of sin is death. Who's it going to be? You or Christ? But the glory and the blessing is found in Jesus Christ. For listen to this. Uh, this is John three sixteen seventeen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son. For God did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world but he sent Christ into the world to save it through him. He did not come to condemn, he came to save. 
if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, ultimately, the only question that's going to be important when that last day comes is, who do you say that Jesus is? If Jesus is our Lord, our God in the flesh that died, paid that price and rose again, then Paul here is jumping for joy and has listed seven amazing things that we can leave the building today praising and glorifying him for. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and close this service. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we praise you and we love you. And Lord, truly, um, thank you for the provision in Christ. But Lord, thank you for the truth. Thank you for the fact that it was completely your work that brings salvation. And Lord, thank you because it's your work that it is secure. No matter what the believer does, we are secure forever with you because of Christ. And Lord, I, I, I do pray that anyone here that truly has not received your grace and been drawn to you for salvation, Lord, I do pray that your spirit would do a work upon their heart and reveal to them their nakedness and their need for Christ as their savior to bring reconciliation, not just for today, but to bring the peace and the truth and the comfort that will be for each and every day here on earth and for all eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.